Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 7 for a few minutes and consider the concluding words of our Lord Jesus Christ in His Sermon on the Mount. This morning we looked at verses 15 through 20 and saw His warning, His sober warning, about false prophets that would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they were ravening wolves, and how to measure a prophet to know that he's a false one or a good one. Because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A tree is known by its fruit, and prophets are known by their works, by their doctrine, by the effect and product of their ministries. Having said all that, in verses 15 through 20, the Lord Jesus Christ continued on into verse 21, and He's still talking about those false apostles, but He's starting a transfer to false professors as well, because we can see in here some false professors, though the main thrust is those false prophets from verses 15 through 20. He has distinguished two groups of people. He's got His disciples sitting there wanting to learn from Him, and He says, beware of false prophets. He doesn't say, many of you are false prophets. He doesn't say, you are false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. He's made a distinction here in His audience that they were going to encounter false ministers that would lead them astray from the gospel that He had taught them here in these three chapters. But as He comes to verse 21, He says, and I'll read three verses, Not everyone that saith unto Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We have three lessons that we want to gather from Matthew 7 tonight, and we want to do it very quickly. Jesus is continuing His condemnation of these false apostles and false teachers. We know that by verse 22, because the appeal is to their prophesying, their miracle working, and their casting out of devils, which were works given not to all saints, but primarily to those with the gift of miracles and the gift of prophecy or to those that claim to be prophets. Not everyone that saith unto me. And there we have a good little word that helps us in understanding how we measure by fruits. Remember this morning I said we don't listen to what a prophet says. We measure him by his works, his actions, his ministry, his the people that follow him, the effect of his preaching on the lives of people. We don't listen to the good words and fair speeches. Because here we have, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. There are many of these false prophets that are going to come in the name of Jesus Christ. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 11. I fear, lest by any means as the servant beguile Eve, so you'd be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ, because if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, he that saith, Lord, Lord, They do a whole lot of talking, but not a whole lot of working. The Savior makes this very simple contrast. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
There's the contrast. It's easy to sing, oh, how I love Jesus. It is a whole lot harder to do what Jesus said to do. And that's how we measure true Christianity. That's how we measure those that will never be confounded. Not only do they say, oh, how I love Jesus, but then they live accordingly. But there will be many that will just pronounce, but Lord, I have preached about you. I've cast out devils in thy name. I used the name of Jesus. I sang the name of Jesus. I chanted the name of Jesus. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say that it's of no value. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This category here are these evil false prophets that are workers of iniquity, that only talk the talk, they never walk the walk, and when they face the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not make an appeal to the mercy of God, nor to their sinfulness, nor to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They make an appeal to their righteousness. They make an appeal to their performance. And nowhere in the Bible are we given any hope for that kind of a response. These men are void of understanding of the grace of God, the holiness of God, the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or their own sinfulness. They are very different from you. Do not read this passage and think that Jesus was telling most on that mountain that he would tell them, I never knew you. He's talking about those that he said, beware of, in verse 15, the false prophets. Beware of false prophets. He then gives them the rule. Measure prophets by their works. Then he gives a warning. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. You're going to see a lot of teachers. And they're going to be teachers trying to lead you astray. They're going to be teachers that aren't teaching you the straight gate and the narrow way. They're going to talk about me. They're going to talk about the Lord. They may even be able to do miracles in the name of Jesus. Doing miracles in the name of Jesus does not prove anything. Judas Iscariot did miracles in the name of Jesus so consistently and so thoroughly none of the other disciples knew that he was the one that would betray Jesus Christ. The church at Corinth had more miracles than either church in the New Testament. The Bible says you come behind in no gift. And yet they were the most carnal of all churches. Being able to perform a miracle even in the apostolic age was no evidence of eternal life. The evidence of eternal life is doing the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's not even doing a miracle in the name of Jesus. It's obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 is abused by many. Many say, He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. If you ever deal with the church of Christ, they're going to take that verse and say, See, you've got to keep all of God's commandments and you've got to keep them up faithfully in order to be saved. And if you have one unconfessed when you die, you're on your way to hell. (laughs) Well... Are we saved by works or not? Be careful. Are we saved by works or not? Yes and no. Yes and no is the correct answer to that question. Let's look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Jesus said, It's not him that saith, Lord, Lord. It's those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. So in that verse, it looks like Jesus is teaching salvation by works. Titus chapter 3. But we know better than that, don't we? We know that you cannot earn your way to heaven, that salvation is by grace without works. So we come to Titus chapter 3 and we read this to remind us, remind ourselves. Verse 4. Paul has just described what a sinner he was and the other apostles in verse 3. 
And he says in verse 4, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You being an heir of eternal life is through the abundant grace and mercy of God that is in Jesus Christ, being justified by His grace, and it is not according to your works of righteousness, but the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we know that we're not saved by works. And yet Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Look at the book of James. You're, at the, you're in front of the book of Hebrews. Now go to behind Hebrews. And you'll find the little book of James. And let's remind ourselves of what is said there. How do you lay hold of eternal life and know that you are saved? It's by doing the will of God. That is the way you know. James chapter 2. I love the truth of salvation. I love it. You present the doctrine of election to some people and they'll say, well, well, if election's the basis for salvation, then it doesn't matter how I live. If I'm not elect, I'm going to hell and I can't help it. If I'm elect, I'm going to heaven and it doesn't matter what I do. Well, you're an idiot for talking that way. And the God of heaven has no room or time for you and your stupid questions. Romans chapter 9 would say, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Why are you even talking like that? I'll tell you the truth about election. God did elect us before the foundation of the world, and our eternal life is absolutely certain and assured because of that choice of the sovereign will of a sovereign God. And yet, the only way that we can know God made that choice for us is to labor diligently to make our calling and election sure. We have the solution to what they call the contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The Arminian says, I've got to emphasize the responsibility of man, or there might be a whole lot of people going to hell that could have gone to heaven. Then there's a whole lot of people that emphasize the sovereignty of God and don't press holy living on their congregation, and they never have the assurance of their eternal life. We've got the truth. We walk right down the middle. We're saved before the foundation of the world, but the only way we know it is to do the will of our Father which is in heaven. God has been merciful to us. If you go out and talk to anyone about God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, you will find out we have something very different. They, they fall into either one of those two ditches. Very few can stay on the highway of holiness and the road of righteousness. James 2 tells us this. Verse 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? No. Faith without works is dead. Faith cannot save him. If a man says, I have faith, I believe, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to God. It doesn't mean anything to men. It's I believe and therefore I am going to do. That's what works. And so we have from verse 14 all the way to the end of the chapter, the examples of being justified by works. 
You know, this, this book is hated by those that believe in salvation by faith because it says faith can't save you. You've got to have works. So in answer to the question, are we saved by our works? Yes and no. No, we're not eternally saved, legally saved, vitally saved, or finally saved by our works. But we are practically saved by our works, and that's how we lay hold of eternal life and lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come and assure our own hearts before Him. Brethren, we are blessed to see what I just explained to you. There are whole books written that say, the dilemma that I just described cannot be solved. And so they run into the ditch of man's responsibility or the ditch of God's sovereignty. And the Word of God is so precious. They say, if election is true, I'd have no motive to live a holy life. How can you make your calling and election sure but by living a holy life? And then we would say to them, but teaching what you are, trying to get everyone to live a holy life in an Arminian scheme, you give no glory to God. And see, we give all the glory to God for our eternal life. But the only way we can lay hold of it is by living a holy life. We're very blessed. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. There are two ditches and they're on the the opposite sides of the road and we're trying to stay on the painted lines right in the middle of the crown of the road if the Lord would have mercy upon us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The fruits by which we are to measure, false prophets, are doing the will of our Father which is in heaven. You are to be able to look at a minister and see, is he doing personally? Is he preaching in his pulpit? And is the church doing what the will of the Father is for our lives? That's how you measure. You don't measure by what they say. You measure by what is done. You measure by the practical effects of a man's life. A tree is known by what forms and hangs off its limbs. Fruit. And you wait and look for what is the effect coming out of that man's life and out of his preaching and out of that church or that ministry that he has. What is forming that we can look at? Is it good or is it bad? Does it measure up to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 or not? And if it doesn't, they're to be rejected. And to comfort his hearers, Jesus said, Not everyone that talks about being mine is really mine. Don't fall for that, he's saying. It's those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. And I want to say something here, and I've said it before. There is on 183 coming out of downtown that huge sign that says, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Romans 10.13. And I've stressed this to you before. But Jesus said, those that call Lord, Lord, doesn't prove anything. See, they take that little soundbite from Romans 10.13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, is it calling once or is it calling ten times? Do you have to have just as I am to an organ when you call it? What in the world are you talking about by calling on His name? I know what He's talking about in Romans chapter 10. That if thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead and shalt confess with thy lips the Lord Jesus Christ and live a virtuous life because the book of Proverbs, the book of Romans speaks about not being conformed to this world but being transformed. I know what Paul meant there. I don't know what they meant on that billboard. 
Because just calling on the name of the Lord is not enough evidence. It's doing the will of your Father which is in heaven. That's how we know. That's how we lay hold of eternal life. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, many. What are, who are the many? The broad way. Those that want the easy way and the popular religion. Those false apostles. Many. Because notice what he's about to describe here. They're prophesying and they're casting out devils and they're many wonderful works. He's talking about primarily religious leaders. Many of those people that are trying to impress you with their religion, they're going to hell. Don't be moved by their appearance. Don't be moved by their fair speeches. Measure them by doctrine. Measure them by what I've just taught you. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Results don't prove anything in the, in the way of miracles. It's doing the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many are going to be confounded. But do not fear this verse. This verse is not leveled point blank at those sitting on that hillside. This verse is leveled at the false prophets that he's warning those on the hillside to be wary of. Because look at it, it's describing prophets at work. And they're going to lay claim to all their ministerial works. So he's trying to comfort them. Don't worry about their long robes. Don't worry about their phylacteries. Don't worry about their long prayers in public. Don't worry about all their fine manners and their ceremonial washings of pots and cups and their hands. Don't worry about any of that stuff. They're on their way to hell. You little people are the ones I came after. Beware of those false prophets. Don't trust them. Measure them by the criteria I've given you, and that is my gospel and the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because many of them are going to go to hell. Listen to their spirit, he tells his people. They're going to be laying claim to what they've done for me as how they should be allowed into heaven. Didn't Luke 18 tell us that Jesus gave a parable and said two men went up to the temple to pray, a publican and a Pharisee. The Pharisee said, O Lord, I thank Thee that I'm not like this publican. I thank Thee, Lord, that I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that. And on that basis, Lord, I'm a good guy and You need to accept me. Then the publican wouldn't even lift his head and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified. There, there is no fine line between those two men. They don't even get close to each other. The thief on the cross said, do you know all of his words by heart? Lord? Wow. That was quite a bit right there. I like that. Do you like that? What had he been calling him? I can't say it in the pulpit. He had been railing on him and cursing him with oaths. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Do you know what he was saying it was all based on? Jesus Christ remembering him in that great day. Not remembering his works, but remembering him in mercy. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. His kingdom. The emphasis all on the Lord Jesus Christ from that ignorant little thief that had been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and whose heart was opened, he called him Lord. He said, remember, because he knew it wasn't his accepting Jesus that was going to get him into heaven. It was Jesus accepting him. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I know that you are King and Lord, 
have mercy upon me. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Praise the glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. There's no fine line between these heretic preachers and the thief on the cross. It's a great gulf between the two of them. It's as great as the public and the Pharisee in Luke 18. May the Lord comfort some of you that think it's a fine line. I'm trying hard and I'm not done. I will teach you that it's not a fine line. There's going to be a shocking revelation in that day about the love of God, isn't there? Let's look at verse 23. It says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What kind of iniquity were they working? False doctrine. Heresy. Pretending miracles. Devouring widows' houses. Doing it for filthy lucre and all the things we covered this morning. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. When it says, I never knew you. The world teaches a God in heaven that loves every single inhabitant on planet earth that has ever lived from Adam and Eve to the present age. How in the world can they believe that in the light of Matthew 7.23 when he will say, I never knew you? Does the Lord Jesus Christ mean in these words he never knew of them? He never knew about them? Or does he mean I never had any affectionate relationship toward you at all? Because the Bible tells us, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And this says, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. If you want a cross-reference from Matthew 7.23, it's Psalm 5.5. There's going to be a shock when they find out that God doesn't love every inhabitant on earth. There isn't a reason for Him to love us. Is there anything lovable about us in the sight of a holy God? Nothing. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I want to comfort some of you tonight. Even though my purpose tonight is not the no fine line series that I'm working on. It's Matthew 7. Those three verses are not to cause you fear. Those three verses are to comfort you that these false teachers that are going to try to mislead you that don't have the works are going to hell. That God does not know them. God did not send them. And Jesus Christ is going to reject them. Don't apply these verses directly to yourself. We've got some verses to apply to you and they're coming up next. This is a warning about the false prophets, the false teachers. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about these words that it's not him that saith, it's him that doeth the will of our Father which is in heaven. Because we know that though the context here is trying to comfort these hearers and warn them about how devilish Some of these false teachers would be. They wouldn't even be known by God. They're on their way to hell. Don't be impressed by what they're doing. I'm going to send them to hell. You shouldn't believe them. We know other verses that say things like this that match up for us. 1 John 2, 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we've got to apply the indirect lesson to us. We don't want to leave it completely on them, but that is the context. We want to remember that talking the talk is no evidence of eternal life. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 4. But let's come to verses 24 through 27. I preached this to you in January, building on a good foundation. 
Let me read them to you. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Brethren, These four verses, very simply, we've been over them before. Therefore, therefore, we jump back to verse 21. It says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. You know, I've never seen this in a football stadium. Have you? I've never seen Matthew 7, verse 24, in a football stadium, but it's got the word whosoever. They get so excited with the word whosoever. But here's the word whosoever. And it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I will liken him to a foolish man who's going down. Now that's one thing we want to notice. Therefore is because it's the doing that's the evidence of eternal life, not the hearing or the saying. Now he's talking to the hearers. Therefore, whosoever heareth, and there's a whole crowd there. He's just warned that crowd, beware of false prophets. He started out this way. Here's how he closed out his sermon. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Don't be moved by an easy religion and a popular religion. Go in the straight gate. Don't listen to false prophets. They're going to try to deceive you. Measure them by their works. Most of them are going to hell. Don't you let them influence you. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a wise man, and he that heareth them and doeth them not is like a foolish man. Now, when we look at this passage in its context, and it says the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew, is that a storm? Is, is that a thunderstorm? No. This, this is a figure of speech the Lord is using. Is this just some practical chastening in life? By the context, we're not going to do run it that way. We're going to run this as the storm of the day of judgment when we stand before Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because And that's the way we did run it. The reason we're doing that is because of verse 22 where it says, Many will say to me in... That day, that day, the way that leads to life is entering the straight gate and doing the will of the Father and following the narrow way. So when we look at these words, and you know they're repeated twice, one for the man that builds in a rock, one for the man that builds on sand. It says, the winds blew, the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. One was founded upon a rock. And that was the man that heard the sayings of Jesus Christ and did them. He built a rock for his found, he was, he built his house, his life on a rock so that in that day when the storms assailed his house and the storms, the judgment of God coming upon a man by trying his works, he stood because he was on a rock because he had heard the sayings of Jesus Christ and he kept them. 
the other man heard the sayings of Jesus Christ and didn't do them, he didn't build his life on a solid foundation. He built it on a very weak one. He is, we are not talking about earning your way to heaven. We are talking about this verse and explaining it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Then Jesus explained it with this little analogy of two houses. How do you want to build? This is not just Solomon's wisdom from Proverbs. This is not just how to have a happy life. This is the storm of the judgment of God coming against men because that's the context. When he says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those are his last verses. Therefore, if you want to lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come, you want to hear the sayings of Jesus Christ and do them. I don't believe in salvation by works. But I do believe in salvation by works. Do you understand that? Amen. I've got to turn you there. I have quoted this verse and I have kept track. 73 times in the last 24 months. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I am so thankful to the God of heaven for not being confused by the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. You should hear some of the things they say. On one side of the door, it says, man's responsible. So it's your job to go up and take hold of that knob and open it and go into heaven. And when you get in there and you look back, it says, God is sovereign. Oh, isn't that precious? It'll say, whosoever will on the front side, and you open it up, and you get in there and you turn back and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's how they try, that, this is their explanation. They say that it's like railroad tracks. One rail is called God's sovereignty, and the other rail is called man's responsibility. And when you look at a railroad track, way in the distance, you see the two coming together and blending into one. Well, brethren, you, neither you nor I want to be on that train because they don't come together that way. They don't blend into one. God has saved us with an everlasting salvation by His own power. We lay hold of it by our works and our responsibility. Look at this, 1 Timothy 6, 12. Paul to Timothy. Do you think, do you think Paul ordained an unsaved man? Maybe? No. But look what he's still telling Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. You've been called to eternal life. You've sure shown the profession of, of eternal life. Now lay hold of it by fighting the good fight of faith. Don't be a quitter on me. Timothy, you fight the good fight of faith. Do you know how Paul knew that he had a crown waiting in heaven? I have fought a good fight. Amen. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. You can lay hold of eternal life. That is making it sure to yourself. Grasping it, not to get it in your possession, but to get it in your assurance. To get it in your confidence. Listen, brethren, our, our, to get it in our possession is given to us entirely by the grace of God, who assigned it to us before the world began. The Lord knoweth them that are His. What a difference between Matthew 7.23, I never knew you, and the Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Is that a fine line? Is there a fine line between 
the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His, and saying, I never knew you. There's no fine line. That's a great chasm. Amen. Verse 17. Timothy, here's what I want you to preach to those that are rich. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Is that... You know, that just sounds almost heretical. But it's not because Paul wrote it, so I teach it. It says in verse 18, do good. It says that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Now, does the foundation sound like that rock we read about in Matthew 7? Thank you. Thank you. I want to tell you something, and I'm... And I hope you understand this. The Bible taught us very clearly in Titus and in many other places. Do you know what it says in Romans 11.6 about grace and works? If it be of grace, then it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it's of works and not of grace, then work is no more work. It's entirely of grace and the two don't mix. Grace and works are like water and gas. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God saving us through Jesus Christ. But we lay hold of it and assure ourselves... By doing good and being rich in good works. And we put that foundation under our feet against the time to come. We are talking not about the practical benefits of obeying God. I am moving past that. Because it says the time to come. And you know what time Paul's talking about. That's when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You can lay up a good foundation. You know what you ought to be thinking every time you do something good to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? I say this on the authority of this verse. Charge the rich that they're always thinking about building a foundation against the time to come. I want to tell you something. Every time you do something kind for someone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that usually means his brethren, his saints, you are laying a brick in your foundation against the time to come. You should be thinking about that as you're doing it. Lord, I'm doing this unto you, and I'm doing this for them, because they are yours. And I am doing this in your name, because you have loved me, and done so much for me. But as I do this, I'm laying up a foundation. I'm putting another brick in the foundation against the time to come. That is exactly what Paul just told Timothy to tell the rich. He that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them. Now, brethren, we don't have time. But do you know what we've covered in the last 17 lessons from Matthew 5, 6, and 7? How about the character of the righteous in the Beatitudes? How about your righteousness being visible to the world so that they can glorify your Father in heaven? How about, exceed, how about it exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Are you keeping godly relationships with everyone you know in spite of what they do to you? Because to hate a brother in your heart or to be angry with a brother without a cause is murder. Do you remember those things that we learned? Listen, do you love and pray for your enemies? 
Are you honest and truthful in all your dealings with care for God's name? Do you avoid sexual sins by fantasy, divorce, or any other means? Do you give only for to be seen of God, not of men? Do you pray only to be heard of God, not of men? Do you fast only for God to know, not for men? Do you have one mind in serving God? Or are you serving two masters by trying to serve God and mammon? Which Jesus said you could not do. Do you judge carefully in respect to others so that you're neither harsh nor hypocritical? Do you judge strictly in respect to fools and scorners that they don't deserve the truth? Are you of great faith in trusting God to be better to you than any earthly father can be? And do you understand and obey the fact that the entire Old Testament can be kept by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you? You know, we just learned all that. And we tore it apart and we went into it in detail. But it'll be lost if you don't go back and read these three chapters from time to time and realize that it's hearing these sayings and doing them that you put a rock under your feet against the time to come. These other men do not do these things at all. All they're talking about is themselves. They do not do these things. and They do not do these things with an eye to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes men will do things that look like they're noble, righteous, charitable, and kind. But they're doing it for motives that you may not even be able to recognize. Because unless they're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's unacceptable in heaven. The Bible says even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Matthew chapter 7. Come back and let's look at what the people thought when he finished his sermon. I have the best parents of anyone in this room. No one's going to argue with me. Everyone knows it. Doesn't matter if you want to argue or not. You can argue all day till you're blue in the face. I know I had the best parents, and I say that in advance because I'm going to say this. I grew up having a picture of Charles Manson hanging on the walls of our home. Charles Manson with the hair down to the middle of his back that bearded lady, that Jesus of the world, you know, the hermaphrodite, doesn't know if it's male or female. Because my parents didn't know any better. They were fed that image of Jesus. That's what they were told was a picture of Jesus, and that was a helpful reminder to them in the home, because our home was going to have Jesus in it, and our home had Jesus in it in many respects, but that is not the Jesus of the Bible. I had no regard for that Jesus as soon as I got past the age of being single digits because there is nothing about that Jesus to draw the attention of anyone that wants a real leader. If you want a king to serve, a savior to trust, a creator to go to in trouble and to commit your soul, a friend that can help when you're in need, and all the other things, you need the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible, not that long-haired hippie standing at that door begging to get entrance. Now, do you know why I'm saying all that? These people did not meet that hermaphrodite. These people did not meet that bearded lady. These people met the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and He was preaching. In this context, He wasn't driving out the money changers with a scourge that He had made with His own hands. 
He was preaching the pure gospel of holy and righteous living. And do you know how they responded? Let's read it. Because it's a different Jesus from what the world presents. Even though this is not Him calming a storm at sea, this is not Him casting out devils, or like I said, driving out the money changers. It's Him preaching. Let me keep going on my little story. Did any of you ever see Jesus of Nazareth put out by Hollywood? That long-haired faggot that sits there with his legs crossed and looks like some Hindu guru that didn't shave his head? Have you ever watched that? He mutters. He mumbles. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Now, some of you are nodding your heads that you've never seen that. And you're making me feel real bad. But I've had a varied experience in my life. And I'm thankful for it, because if I hadn't seen it, I couldn't reach people and teach them and put things on the website that make the contrast. Because there's a real contrast to be made. That Jesus of Nazareth looks like such a weak man. If you put a broomstick on his hands, if he was in a bench press position, it'd crush his chest. I want to tell you something about my Lord Jesus Christ. He was a carpenter till he was 30 years of age, and he didn't have Mary carrying his lumber for him. It's pitiful what they have as a Savior. He sits cross-legged and mutters. Okay, this is his sermon when he sat down. And he didn't look like a Hindu guru. Brethren, he was doing some pointing, whether it was with his finger or with his words, against all the false teachers of his day. He was going after the religious leaders of his time and all the denominations present in Israel. He had sweat beads forming on his forehead as he spoke loud enough for a large audience to hear. You don't think about Jesus Christ of that way because you still have Catholic pictures in your head. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Astonished at his doctrine. Overwhelmed. Shocked surprised at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus spake with authority they had never heard before because he was truly called by God. Most of the men preaching in Israel had called themselves by looking in the college handbook and saying, I don't want to be a welder and I don't want to be a carpenter. I think I'll be a minister. That's how most men get in the ministry today. They go to college and pick it out of the college handbook. He condemned the notions of the religious leaders of his day without hesitating or apologizing. He set a standard much higher than they had ever imagined, and he didn't try to soft sell it. He derived his doctrine from the God of heaven and a holy interpretation of holy scripture. He laid down a holy standard for righteousness and then made hellfire the punishment for it. Not the Jewish tribunal or the Sanhedrin. He didn't allow any possibility of success here or hereafter by living a carnal life. The educated and refined pulpiteers of any generation do not have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the form of godliness without any power that is such a threat to saints today. We need to preach this. We need to believe this. We need to teach it to our children. This is an authoritative man preaching the will of God to the people. And Jesus did it and they were astonished because he taught with authority. We need to pray for God to raise up other men that would look like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul did. 
He was unafraid to preach the gospel. He never varnished it. He never polished it. He never refined it. He let it go. And brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is one impressive Savior. He is a prophet of which you can be proud. Uh, Even though I hate that word, but you know what I mean by it. To thank God for raising up such a voice. He thundered against the religious leaders of his day. They hated him for it. He exposed them by his perfect life. He called God to record on them. And he laid out a standard of righteousness that he never apologized for. I do not speak sacrilegious when I make fun of that other Jesus. Because that other Jesus is a lie of the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible is a glorious Savior. And he's a fit Savior for you. And if you haven't fallen on your face before him and repented of your sins and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, then you're a fool. You're building your house on sand and the rain's coming and the winds are going to blow and your house is going to fall. I charge you tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is most worthy. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star, and He is the day star. And if you don't pay attention to Him now and submit yourself to Him, you will in that day. And let's do it tonight. Let's lay hold of eternal life by fighting the good fight of faith, doing good, being rich in good works, hearing, believing, and doing the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ.